Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan. Thank you so much for tuning in to Season 2 of Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Over the next 12 weeks, I speak to an amazing group of inspiring individuals about thriving and surviving in life. First up is best-selling author and screenwriter Anna McPartlin, who, thanks to an almost unbelievable sequence of challenging and tragic life events, has become an expert at surviving and thriving. Be ready to learn from her and laugh with her in this raucous, rollicking roller coaster of an episode. So, Anna, I am so excited to meet you. We've never met before. So this is sort of going to be our kind of getting to know each other chat. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like a stalker preparing for the podcast because you've got to read up and find stuff about people. And it's really awful. You know, you're Googling and you go, oh, I didn't know that about her. But I have to say, as soon as I started doing the research on you, I kind of went, oh, my God, podcast aside, I just really want to meet this person. Oh. Oh, thanks a million. God, I hope I don't disappoint now, Sabina. No, no, you won't. You can't possibly disappoint. You know, just to the listeners here, um, the focus of this podcast is talking to people about thriving and surviving in life. And I have the world expert here in the room. If anyone can talk about surviving and thriving, um, it's you because you've, I was just thinking, you know, I'm reading one of your books at the moment, your latest book, which is called? It's called Below the Big Blue Sky. Below the Big Blue Sky. Fabulous book. Um, But I was just thinking, you know, if you wrote your life story in the book to one character, people say, how would you go way out of that? No no, one would believe it. That that couldn't happen to a fictional character. So maybe we'll attempt to start sort of at the beginning. Um, So you became a carer actually really very young for your mum and my granny. Your granny. Yeah. So my parents split in the 70s. My mum actually walked out in her marriage and took me with her when everybody else was staying. She said, no, I want better for me and I want better for Anna. And she got on the train from Kerry and she came back to Dublin and we moved in with her mum. And a lot of mothers wouldn't take their children in. You know, back in the day, they'd say, you made your bed, now you lie in it. She took her back in. Now, every now and again, she'd give a dig, you know, (laughs) because, you know, she's an Irish mammy and it wasn't cool. But... You know, we were welcome there. My granny was pushing 80 at that point. Wow. Yeah. Now I was five and um, like my granny was a fascinating character. She had her children very late. I think she had my mum when she was like 40. Okay, because that's what I was going to say. You know, I wouldn't have expected. Yeah, she was a fascinating character. Um, She married very late. Um, But anyway, she took us in and... um, she wasn't 
like she was fine but you know she was aged and she needed a bit of help and then unfortunately mum was kind of getting her act together and starting her new life and going back and doing night classes and all of this stuff and she was diagnosed with MS Yeah, and it was primary progressive MS <gasps> So just for people listening MS is multiple sclerosis and that there there are two types of multiple sclerosis um, primary progressive and then a secondary type which is relapsing and remitting and actually back in the 70s that was that would have been pretty bad to have as well oh, what but but nowadays uh, the treatment the drugs that they have for secondary relapsing remitting MS is incredible they've life been changing. life changing life for people changing. so yeah. you're seeing younger people now not experiencing the same sort of debilitating and devastating mobility issues and sight issues and damage yeah yeah um, so it's a disease that actually affects the myelin sheets in your brain so essentially really what it does is myelin sheets are like um, the cable on a wire in your house so basically what happens is your messages in your brain all become mixed up and things don't work properly and it can be very debilitating but primary progressive is oh it's um, dreadful it's a dreadful 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 disease and um, she became disabled quite quickly I mean by the time I was so I was five when mum walked out of my father I was 11 when she had to be put into a home Mm-hmm. So within those six years, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse until eventually we had to give up the ghost. It was just impossible. So it started off with mom falling down. And then um, so sometimes she couldn't get up, you know, that shuddering and all of that kind of thing um, and slow walking. And then she was on a stick and then she was on a frame and then she couldn't sleep upstairs. So we made a bedroom in the dining room for her. Um, and the we we are talking about a woman in her 80s and a child to six or seven years of age. Yeah. And I have to say, though, we had huge support from our neighbours. Oh, right. Okay. I mean, they were extraordinary. And my aunt, my mum's sister was amazing. And we had massive support. Like during the winters, the neighbours would come in and make the fire for us. And like we really had huge support. But by the time I hit 11, it just wasn't enough. So I'll tell you a story about how our time ended because I think it's quite funny. So <laughs> now there's a tinge of tragedy to it. I'm not going to lie to you. But, <laughs> but I think it kind of sums up where we were at the time. So at this point, mum is sleeping in the dining room. Uh, Granny keeps falling. And every time she, for some reason, she would choose to fall in the bathroom with her knickers around her ankles. Right. right? So I think what happened was she'd forget that she hadn't pulled up her tweeds and she'd start walking, right? (laughs) And she'd fall and she'd call... Anna, right? Yeah. And my, we got so used to this happening that sometimes I'd be sitting on the couch with my mum and the next thing is we'd hear, thump, Anna. And my mother would go, oh God, I hope she has her knickers on, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I'd hike up the stairs and pull up the tweeds and get her up and she was grand and everything was fine and she'd go into bed or whatever and that was fine. And then what happened was one night... I was in bed, mum was downstairs in her bed and granny got up to go to the toilet and she fell and she couldn't get up and she was calling me and calling me and calling me and I wasn't waking up. You were out cold. I was not waking up and the next thing is mum was crawling out of her bed and crawling oh, into so your the mom hall. could hear She her. could hear oh. her. She's roaring. Mum crawls out of the bed and she's like... Um, 
okay, uh, mother, I'll, I'll sort it out. I'll do whatever. And she picked up the phone and she rang the neighbours and Granny was calling and calling and calling. And now mum's worried because it's like, what is going on? So the neighbour came in and like he, I remember, I think he was like a karate expert or something. So like he was well <laughs> able. Like I, I remember him being a karate. Somebody could correct me on that, but I remember him as a karate expert. That's what's important. That's what what's you important. actually remember. What I remember is that, right? And he could not get granny up and she kept pushing him off going, would you ever just get Anna? She can do it. And he was like, oh no, Mrs. Gallagher, I'll just lift you. No, get Anna. She knows how to do it right so he wasn't having it she wasn't having a bar of him and the wife they were there it's the middle of the night mam is downstairs calling up is everything alright right? it's chaos right and granny's still screaming for me so the next thing is they called a fire brigade right the fire brigade came all the lads rocked up the stairs and they bring an ambulance so now you've got the fire you've got the two neighbours you've got mam downstairs calling yeah. every two minutes going what's happening I'm asleep through the whole thing <laughs> the ambulance are there the firemen are there and all the while my granny is going Anna will you ever get look at this now <laughs> so anyway they eventually got her up and they brought her to hospital and I woke up the next morning and I will never forget it I just saw this rubber mark like black rubber mark on the wallpaper as I was going down the, uh, the stairs and it must have been from the stretcher, the stretcher or, something, or whatever yeah. that had just marked the wall and I walked down to breakfast and I said to mum I said mum what, what's that on the on the on the thing? And she said, "Sit down. This is where it's a bit sad." She says, "Sister, sit down, darling. I think it's over for us because Aww. this social had been called because I was malnourished." Yes, yes, I, I read that. Yeah. And was it that because you were feeding yourself? Or? It was because we were living on. It was because I thought I was too good for Meals on Wheels. That's why right. I wouldn't eat it. I thought it was muck. Right. And back in the day, it was hard to 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 heat the meals. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't have microwaves. No, 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 no. So People like, don't, yeah, it's and very I just different. Couldn't eat, I just and, couldn't bring And actually, to be honest, well, certainly my childhood, food was horrible. Oh, it was rotten. <gasps> I was oh, a was dread, rotten. dreadful I, eater. Oh, I'll never forget it, but it was rotten and God, like, they were all doing their best and, um, but I just couldn't eat it so I lived on wham bars. So that's, oh my gosh. Yeah, like wham bars and, you know, sweets and things like that and mum was always trying to encourage me to eat, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, she, it wasn't a neglect thing. Not yeah. At all. It was, I just, she couldn't cook for me. It was meals on wheels and I just couldn't eat it. And I remember she, she literally sat me down one day and she was trying to say, like we were having an argument. She was like, you have got to eat something. And I was like, I am not eating that. I was saying it's muck or whatever the yeah, equivalent yeah, 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 yeah. was when I was a kid. And she was like, it's perfectly good food. And the next thing is I picked up the, the little tray, you know, the little silver tray. That they came in. Yeah, 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 yeah. The little aluminium thing. off the little aluminium thing and I peeled off the paper on top of it and it was a rice pudding with raspberry jam dolloped on the top of it and I literally turned it over right and, and I was waiting for it to hit the floor and my mother just looked at me and she went you made your point darling yeah. <laughs> you made your point it was going nowhere and I was like <laughs> yeah so we were found out basically what happened oh, was, was and um, yeah everybody kicked in then and my auntie Mary uh, flooded in Dublin was doing her very best for us for as long as she possibly could and the neighbours were doing their very best for us but in the end 
mum needed help and yeah. my granny needed help. They both needed to go into a home and I needed You needed help. a childhood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, which is yeah. what's really nice then. So, so, so you then went to live in... Ken Ken Mayer, uh, with your cousins yeah. and an aunt and uncle and yeah. I know I read one of your interviews and I just thought it was lovely and she said and I got to be a child yeah yeah it was you amazing know? I mean I was always a child but I was a child with massive responsibilities mm-hmm. so you know I I had to be there do you know what I mean um, I, I don't I, I, I went past my wall of course I did and I went to friends houses and blah 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 but I was always conscious that I needed to be going home I always had something to do so suddenly Suddenly, I'm a kid. I'm like, and bedtimes apply, and all this kind of stuff. Right. Like I used to put the ladies to bed. And yes. then I'd go to, but I put tuck them in. I go, good night. Is everybody ever good? And then I'd go to bed. Now it's like I'm the first to bed. What's that about? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and how did? What was that like? That that adjustment. It reads in an interview very nicely, yeah. you know, but you're then miles away from your mom oh, and your yeah. granny, you know, your yeah. your family. Yeah. So, like, was there, and I can't help but think your character in your, uh, of Juliet in, yeah. in The Big Blue, yeah. um, or am I wrong? There's some of you Absolutely. in her, you know, in that, for people listening, they, you have to get the book and you actually really, well, you don't have to read the previous book, yeah, but it's have. great if you yeah. read the previous yeah. book, yeah. Um, which is where Juliet's mum, Rabbit, uh, it's really just about her final days living with cancer. So uh, that's the first book. Uh, the Last Days of Rabbit Hayes. And uh, I have to say as well, um, the thing is with Anna and, and just listening to you talking here now, Anna has this wonderful capacity. I'm talking about you in the yeah. third person and you're sitting here, but I'm thinking of the listeners. She has this wonderful capacity to laugh and, and see the funny side of very, very difficult and tragic and challenging um, times. And actually, that's why your books are fabulous. I will be I will put my hands up. Right. I hadn't read any of your books. And actually, I would not have picked one of your books because for the same reason that I don't like to watch sad stuff on on telly, I just if I get sad and I cry, sometimes I stay there, you yeah. know, even if it's I'm reading a book. So I don't unnecessarily give myself something to cry about. That's a, that's a really good ethos. You know? You know? <laughs> so I don't and I don't listen to news and I don't, you know, the main yeah. stuff will get to you and please don't. Sh- I love dogs, but please don't show me oh, pictures of no, them. No, you I'm know, the same. I'm know, the same. Yeah, whatever. I, I won't recover. What? Because I was interviewing you and I said, well, I have to read this book. You know, you just got to get over yourself and, and, and read this book because it's very obvious at the front that it is about someone dying. Um, you're not giving away any, no. any, any plot no. in it. But it's the most joyous book I read. I laughed. I, laughed. I didn't cry once. Maybe you're meant to cry. But there was that doesn't mean I didn't find it sad yeah. or I didn't find it poignant. Um, I just found it very real. Uh, lovely, lovely, very real about families and something that Irish families do a lot, yeah. which is we laugh about some of those terrible times. Um, Absolutely. And you capture it, you capture it beautifully. And then um, Rabbit Hayes had a daughter, Bunny, who um, whose real name is uh, is Juliet. And the, the current book then actually is this sort of follow up. And you do it very nicely in that you can read the book in, the new book in oh, isolation. You know, it, yeah. It's there, but it is nice to kind yeah. of have got to know the, the family beforehand. But um, she did a bit of looking after her mum yeah. towards the end. But there's something that I find I found really interesting in your writing 
is that you've managed in a relatively light way to discuss some very serious issues. Now, I'm not just talking about death and cancer and those kind of things, but one scene really jumped out to me. Um, and that's where Juliet and Davy, who uh, who looks after her, um, they're in the Grand Canyon and it's her mum's one year anniversary. anniversary. And she opens up for once. She hadn't been. And she talks about her mum, Rabbit, was an atheist. Yeah. I'm an atheist. Uh, her nana is a, a Catholic and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, we grow up in, in, in Catholic Ireland. But um, she's very worried about where her mum is. is. Very. And she has lovely ideas about imagine if there was a place where we could meet each other or whatever very very it's a it's a lovely wonderful scene but I couldn't help when reading it knowing that you've written it is that something from your life did you wonder or worry where your mum was after I mean I I worried about my mum all the time. So, okay. so before she died and then I'll, I'll tell you. So I, I was always worried and I didn't know I was worried because I was a kid and I just accepted what was going on. I only stopped kind of feeling that sense of anxiety in my mid-twenties. My mother died when I was 17. Um, it was really weird and then I could see what it was. But I was so, always so worried because I was so far apart from her and what's going on and is she eating and I remember one time the the lovely nurses she was in the Royal Hospital in Donnybrook and it was right. the most amazing place and the nurses were unbelievably good but mum had got so bad at that stage that she was sitting in the wheelchair and she was by uh, one of those old fashioned radiators you know the big yeah, old yeah, yeah. The, like the school ones. super hot like yeah, super yeah. hot and wasn't her ankle right beside it oh. and didn't it burn a hole in her and when I oh heard that I lost my mind right, right? So, so her nerve endings she obviously wasn't were, feeling no yeah. she wasn't feeling it so of course the nurses lost their minds when they saw and they were it was and she just told me on the phone like oh and this happened you know because it was yeah, something yeah. to talk about for her you know what I mean there's a hole in my leg darling you know? oh, God. and I was beside myself over this and then I'd hear something on the radio like oh there could be an earthquake in Dublin and that's right. blah 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 and I go oh my god and right. that would be send me off the Richter scale I was constantly worried about it I was constantly thinking about it and it's only now as an adult that I look back and I go oh my god you just spent your whole time chronic stress just being stressed yeah so it was it then in a way in some sense and I, it's always hard to say this but a, sort of a release in no. that she was gone no. no when she died I was absolutely horrified I must have pretended to myself for a long time, even though every time I walked into that ward, there would might be somebody missing that was there the week before. I had seen people come and go. I knew the only way out of that that bed was a box. But I had decided in my head that that wasn't going to be my mother. Right. And that she was going to last for years. And I had some basis for this because mum was one of the better patients. How old was she when she, she died? She was 49. Oh, and she went in when she was 42. Seven so years So my next hospital. birthday I will have outlived her or the one after that actually I will have outlived her in two years time. Right. So when she was in a wheelchair she'd sit in her wheelchair and she'd have her fags and she'd smoke her fags and her best pal Trudy would sit with her and Trudy was paralysed from the neck down mum had the use right. of her hands and the two of them would sit together and they'd smoke away at the th- like 
like Trudy was so committed to smoking yeah. that she smoked. I, I mean, every time I saw her, she had a fag in her mouth and she had no arms. So like that's commitment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she, her arms were by her side and she had her fag. And I used to feed her a cigarette and the two of them would be laughing and cackling about something and I'd be feeding Trudy her cigarette. And literally she would smoke it to the right at the end of the button. I'd be, Trudy, my fingers, my fingers, Trudy. And she'd be like, you're all right, love. And every now and again, her head would fall forward. So she'd be sitting there and her head would fall forward with a fag in it. And all I could see was the, 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 the lit butt right at her chest. And I'd be pulling her head up and she'd be laughing away going, I'm a professional, you know. And uh, that was great. She was great. Like you think about their commitment. Like these days, people gave up smoking when they had to go outside. Trudy yeah. would, like Trudy, yeah. she was committed. Committed like, smokers. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, the two of them would smoke away and they, they were great. Like there was people in the hospital that that were in rotating beds because of bed sores and they were, yeah, yeah. They, they couldn't do anything. And so I thought, no, she'll be grand. And then when she died, it was such a shock and I was so appalled and I was so angry that I was 17 and I was going to be back in Dublin the next year going to college or to right. do whatever. So that's why you were angry was because you thought you were going to I be was, up there again. I had again. plans. Yeah. My plan was I was going to keep knocking go up and down to RTE every single day and knock on the door because I heard that Philip Schofield did that. I don't know if that's true or not but in the <laughs> 80s I heard that Philip Schofield <laughs> just kept knocking on the door. Really? That's what I heard and I took that in my head and I went I'm doing that right? Yeah. So I was going Mum will be So in. what did you want to be? I wanted to go, do Anything, anything in RTE. Anything at all. I was going to go with the view to answer the phones and do whatever and then make my way up in RTE. That's what I was going to do. Mom was going to be in the Royal Hospital Donnybrook. I was going to let so right get a little it. apartment and then there was a daycare centre that had just been being built at that time and I was thinking we'll live together. She'll go in during the day. I'll have her in the evenings and I'll work in RTE. Oh, I had wow. it all sorted. Yeah. And then she went and died on me. <laughs> wrecking the plans <laughs> so I was just disgusted about that God I yeah, know I, I know, was and I know. W- what you were saying about the you know was I worried no I wasn't worried I'm the I, I only call myself an atheist if I'm with somebody that I think is a god bother that will try and change my mind because yeah. that usually puts a stop to it I'm pretty much agnostic and I know people hate that but I don't know I don't yeah, know yeah, 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 I have yeah, a yeah. clue I don't care to be honest with yeah. you that's how I feel about it I really don't care yeah. I know that that crap that they're shoveling you know religion is the religion is a, different it's, it's yeah, corporation yeah, 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 yeah. I know that but as for anything else, I've no idea. But yeah. my mother had massive faith. Oh, did and she? And the sicker she got, the, the more, more faithful she, she became. Oh, right, okay. And God love her. Like, all she, like, you see, kids are assholes, really. So she was basically like, and my, she used to bring me into this little kind of sacristy area in the hospital and she'd introduce me to all her friends. They were the saints, right? So it was basically a bunch of statues and these oh, really? mates. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, and she, she went, oh, I want to show you my mates. And I'd come in, I'd have to sit there and I'd be like, nonsense and she'd be like and I, I, I get great you know joy out of this yeah, and I'm like yeah. crap you know what I mean because I'm a kid and I don't care if I had my time back again 
I would do things differently. Uh, yeah, but that's, <laughs> but that's hindsight, isn't yeah, it? You she know, didn't mind. She, I mean, she, you know, but she got massive, massive comfort out of it. But I have to tell you this because this is brilliant, right? So before she went into the home, <laughs> she used to go to Lourdes looking for a miracle, right? Right, okay. Now she believed. Oh no, and oh gosh, and I remember, God, I really remember that in the in the 70s uh, and probably the possibly 80s into the 80s, yeah. like in the local parish. I haven't travelled very far. I only live around the, you know, grew up around the corner from here. But like everybody used to go oh, to, to, to Lourdes and you'd be pilgrimages to Lourdes yeah. and people paralysed and, yeah. and all the rest and you kind of go God that's another money making racket but well, worse so because you're, you're playing, playing on, on these people. people's sense of hope it's, oh. tra- it's terrible so the, it was either she'd go with the MS Society or you know whoever the society was right and they'd take her and of course she'd be the one in the wheelchair and then there'd be loads of them and they'd all go together and basically what happened was they all went over there wheelchairs and uh, they stayed in this hotel and it was a very nice hotel and they used to go down to so they do all the holy moly stuff and you know get the the holy water and they'd be dipped in the freezing water and all this and the next thing is anyway in the evenings they'd have a lovely time and you might even have you know a a glass of carling or something do you know what I mean and enjoy themselves and they'd be in the dining room and they'd meet all the other people that were there and they'd get their stories and sure mom was thrilled skinny with all of this like and mom did love if she'd meet somebody that was in a worse jocker than she was it really made her day so anyway right she'd be like God love her like you know (laughs) be like thrilled you know my my mother sorry and I'm interrupting now my mum had dementia but wasn't aware she had dementia and um, (laughs) you know when she was moved into a care home uh, like that she said to me oh those poor people (laughs) oh my god she she can't she doesn't know any words that she's a bit off in the head and (laughs) that's it you'd be literally like it's it's competition oh yeah oh mum be great that too but she'd go off thrilled going I'm much better than her but anyway she she met this um, two women uh, and a child and the child had some severe, I don't know what was uh, what it was, but something was wrong. They were in a wheelchair and they couldn't do anything right. And it was like, I was told that it was like a, f- a severe form of epilepsy where it, it just destroyed them. I can't remember, but yeah, there yeah. was a story, right? And I was 11 at the time. Right? Did you, you didn't go to Lourdes? No, no, I never went to Lourdes. Yeah. It was always with the society, right? So me and Granny would stay at home and she'd go off for her week to get her miracle. And anyway, they met this woman and her son and his aunt, right? And they were taking him for his miracle. And every night they'd put him up to bed and then they'd come down and they'd <clears throat> sit at the table and they'd have their dinner and a bit of crack or whatever and they'd lock the door and basically they'd go and check on him, right? That was the thing. So anyway, one of the days this priest arrives with scapulars. Yeah, you know, yeah. the brown felt, the brown felt horrible yokes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. he arrives with them. With them under our vest. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the cotton vest, right? So basically... He arrives and he splashed some water. He said, these are very, these are very powerful. They're very powerful. And they all lined up, right? Lining up to get their scapulars. And my mother saw the woman with the little fella in the wheelchair and she went, oh, you go in there. Let's call her Marjorie for the sake of it. You go in there now, Marge. You get ahead of me. Don't you worry, right? Delighted with herself. The next thing is they're down at dinner. This is the story. I don't know. This is the story. 
they're down at dinner <laughs> and the aunt goes up to check on the child. Yeah. And the next thing is she comes screaming down the stairs going, there's somebody in the room talking to the boy and the door is locked. So the manager and everyone, my mother is down, like eyes just, I, this is just great, carry on. What's going on, right? They're all looking. So your man goes up and the next thing is they come down and they come down with this story that uh, he was perfectly fine but the scapular was on the outside of the of the door hanging off the knob right yeah. and then my mother <laughs> says the next day the child was sitting up eating his breakfast delighted with himself right oh, now that, that he, is that the story he's fine right so now that's the story right I have no idea what the real story is I just know the story that I was told right, right. so my mum rocks we had been to Lourdes about three times now yeah, at this yeah. stage and she rocks through the door and normally she'd be serene and she'd be delighted and she'd be talking about her trip and I said how did you get on mum and she said oh well it was grand until some kid stole my miracle <laughs> because she had let her in the queue ahead of hers <laughs> she never went back she was like oh well God. you only get one chance yeah, yeah, like I'm not gonna it's like getting five numbers on the lotto yeah. isn't it you're gonna go go oh, yeah, I yeah. want the six yeah. I want the six I mean that kind of tells it you, you've said that in lots of interviews there was just your mum had a great sense of humour oh, yeah. and you laughed over lots of stuff and actually you know when you said that you moved to, to Ken Mayer I'd never heard this term but you were a fosterling and actually yeah. it is a term I looked it up I'd never heard of it and I think perhaps and a fosterling sounds quite nice in a, in a way yeah. and possibly because you as I'm gathering you had a, quite a nice experience living with your Oh yeah with, I mean I was very lucky yeah I mean my my aunt was my father's sister and uh, oh oh, I didn't know that no it was my father's sister oh so that's rather interesting it it is interesting because you were really estranged from your dad and your dad was an alcoholic yeah well you know what's really weird about what's happened since I started talking about my family is that everything I learned about my parents I learned as a child and I was exposed to different people's opinions right so yes my father was definitely an alcoholic that is not in question but the kind of alcoholic he was I believe now that I was wrong I thought he was kind of a fall down alcoholic kind of all the time he was a functioning alcoholic he was like and there'd be times when he'd stop drinking that I never knew about this and it was only when I started talking about it people would challenge me on it and go you don't know what you're talking about and I've had some people be quite nasty to me as though I'm lying about him and I'm just telling you what I know Right. you know my mother left him for a reason he never came to see me he lived in in Calorglan that's like 20 miles down the road or 25 miles down the road I saw him once a year if I was lucky Yeah. Um, so I thought the reason he wasn't coming down the road was because he could couldn't drive. Like, right. why else would he not bother okay. to see me? And did you ever get to resolve that with him? Oh, no. To talk to him? No, 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 he, no. He died quite young too. Yeah, he died at 59. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I think this is interesting. This is something that, that, I, that I, and I discussed this with um, actually Hilary Fannin, who, who, yeah. who, who was a guest because she had written, her first book was a memoir. And she wrote about her life story. Again, she had really Mm. quite an unusual um, childhood. And she wrote about it, about her story from the age of four to 11. And I was talking to her, how did you remember that? How do you get all that information? And it really was very interesting um, the the way she she did it. But she had two siblings. And so she wrote a story. Her her father was having, you know, an affair and used to bring her when he met the woman he was having the affair with, you know, this sort of thing. Charmer. But... (laughs) 
Um, but she, as she said, she idolised her father, you know, and it's only with an adult's eyes that you look back and go, charmer, yeah. <laughs> you know. But what we were conversing about was they were told one story um, and, and basically her siblings had completely different recollection of the same incident. Yeah. And actually what we were saying is, well, it actually doesn't really matter. Your memory is your memory. Yeah. And that's what that's what you have. Do you, do you know? Yeah, I and, do. And, and you don't want to. Yes, it's different. Now you can actually supplement your memories with what other people's stories were about yeah. your dad. And there, theirs will be biased, too, for various Completely reasons. Completely biased. Like I was... Uh, uh, accosted at my cousin's wedding um, by a, an old friend of his um, who didn't like what I had to say about my dad. Right. And basically came up to me and said, oh, well, you're doing well as a writer. All right. Making up all your lies comes naturally to you. And I just said nothing because it was my cousin's day and I wasn't going to get involved with whatever. What can you say to that? Yeah. You know, all I know is my experience, which yeah. was very, very limited of this man. And any of that experience I had was around drink. Yeah. You know, and... And it's your truth. And it is my truth. And it's funny because I was very starry eyed about my dad before my mum walked out on him. I remember thinking he was the best thing ever. And do I was you a remember? Do you have do you have much memories? Vague. Very few memories before vague. the age of five, I really. Mean, very vague. Yeah. Like I have a vague memory of him lifting me up, you know, yeah. on the bed with the feet and like I have a vague memory. I'm, like it's really super vague. I really can't pin down any particularly happy moment that I had with my dad that I so, can. So you, you, you never connected with him before he died did you uh, or did no, you we, no we because his sister took me in because this originally yeah, yeah his I mom, had assumed it was your mum's sister no, took my mum's sister had four boys in Dublin and there was just no room yeah. like you know it was the grace just, problem in, yeah, the, in the book yeah. there was just no room but she took me in every time I went to see mum so right. I'd sleep in the playroom and they'd set up everything and she'd do everything for me when I was up there and she was fantastic but like my aunt and my uncle had five kids and a massive big house in Kenmare and they were like she's just sure you know just might as well be home one. for a sheep as a lamb yeah, you know what yeah. I mean but and originally what happened was it was my grandmother, my dad's mother, that said, "I'm taking her." Right. Myself and my and her granddad are taking right. her. And Mary, my aunt, that took me in, said, "You are not, ma'am. She's 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 going to have a childhood now. You're too old." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what happened. So and again, this is in your book. It's again the this same. Is in your the book ter- yeah, the, Molly, the Molly, Molly wanting to take. That's him. right. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, that reflects a reality that yeah. happened in my life. And so I was taken in, and it was magic like being a kid but it was also really difficult because you are living in somebody else's house you are living as a part as a member of somebody else's family and you have to find your feet in that family and you, and have, you to have to your find place. your place your place and and your place always feels a little bit like your jigsaw outside. piece from another so jigsaw you, so you have there's one of your other books where you kind of explore that is yeah. it the character is Mary and in, in Ken Mary is yeah. it that she yeah, always felt the, like an outsider from the crowd exactly. apart from the crowd you do feel um, and that is no reflection on the care and the love. No, 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 no. But they were, I couldn't have asked for a better family. And I always say that I have the best father in the world in Tony O'Shea. Still right. to this day, like it fills me, like I feel tearful when I talk about him because I adore him. So, so your father's family, your birth father's family, yeah. um, were very loving and very embracing. They, so it, it, it does seem rather odd that he didn't 
come for you, that he didn't visit when you lived in Kenmare with them or, you know, so he must have been somewhat estranged from his own family. He, I mean, he'd come and see my grandparents. Like, maybe he saw them more than he saw me, but I don't think so. Um... And I don't know if Calorglan to him felt very far away back in the 80s. But like I knew a guy that used to drive there to see his girlfriend every weekend. So it couldn't have been that far away. Sure. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, my father used to pack us in the back of the car and we'd either drive up to, to Nuri or Belfast on a Saturday well or we'd drive down to Tullamore. So, and I'm older than you. So, well so, so you know, and yeah. I mean, you know, you could drive and you yeah. could, I mean, the roads were windy and all the rest and it would take you a while, but it's, you yeah, know, it's but not, we don't live in... No, and you I know, suppose that's Brazil. why I, that's why I put it together in my head that he was a fall down alcoholic because I thought, well, that's why he was never in the car. That's why he never came to see me. Well, you had to make a reason why he mightn't be able to see you. I'm I had sure, to work, in a way. I, yeah, I presume maybe that's what went. That's on. what we do. We do, we we tell ourselves stories, um, and that's why I always say that's very liberating as well because if we we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world yeah. and to make sense of it for our brain, so our brain can figure out patterns and what to do and what to behave and all the rest. Um, and I think that's really empowering because you can make any story that you want then. Yeah. You, you know, you can change stories as you go forward. Do you know, you can yeah. kind of... I didn't, I found it kind of jarring afterwards when people were, and it was very few people, I must say, but there was incidents after I spoke about him that I was very jarring. It was almost like, I lost my dad when I was five and I sat on a wall outside my granny's house and waited for him in his car for about three or four weeks, according to my mother. Right. I don't remember it, but she said you sat on that wall every single day waiting for your dad to come. And I guess I grieved him yeah. then. Over my teenage years, because he was living with my sister. No, because, because you were I living, was living with, with his, his, sister. his sister. Every now and again, he'd make some kind of effort and come to the town and I don't know say hello for an hour or two or whatever. And uh, then when I got a little bit older, like 15, 16, like he'd hire a caravan somewhere and go, come on and stay for a week or something. And I had a half sister and my aunt told me about my half sister when I was about 14, I think. Right. She sat me down and she said, look, you have a half sister in Calorglan and it was that gas because towns are so funny you know small towns I I went into school and I told my friends I was like you're not going to believe it I have a half sister and my mates were like oh we knew that ages ago but mem and dad told us don't say a word oh <laughs> serious the whole town oh down knew oh my god they said we'd be killed oh we'd be god. killed if we told you and I was like they're going so I'm the last to know then. oh my god oh that's awful <laughs> oh that's, that's awful really Hilarious. Oh I thought like this God. big news, you know, and they were like, oh, we knew like for ages. We're, we're, we're still in your childhood and there's so many other things I want to talk to you about because I want to track forward to um, <laughs> to you having plastic surgery, which is not for the reason that a lot of people would think. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You were in a horrific car accident. Well, well plastic, you were knocked yeah, down. plastic surgery would be an exaggeration, but I was mangled. <laughs> like I was, I was hit by a car, and uh, so I was, I was heading to Tesco on the Northumberland Road, and it was winter, and it was really dark, and there was a cars parked all at the side of the road, yeah. and and there was kind of double parked. And anyway, the light was orange, and I hiked out on the road, but sure, by the time I got beyond the car, it was red, and some guy took off, and I went over the bonnet of the car and um, my friend was with me and apparently I gave him PTSD because the story was Oh you weren't on your own I was with a mate and the story goes that this is what I heard at the time he said to me that um, they put a coat over me they thought it was a goner and the next thing is I peeped out and went hello (laughs) 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 I was like what's the difference so even in the midst of the story and I kept saying to the ambulance man I was in the thing and I was going um, uh, can you just give me a bang there on the leg and he's like what I said just give me and he said you're after breaking your leg love and I said no the other one just give it a bang and he's like why and I said I want to make sure that I can still walk I was right. obsessed and I kept saying over because I was concussed and right. over and over and over again I just kept saying touch my leg I want to see can I feel you touching my leg meanwhile the other leg was broken in three or four places right. I, th- that should have been the giveaway because I was in screaming agony so but I was, for some reason I just kept thinking just touch the, the leg, other leg. You were figuring it out. That, I was yeah. trying to figure it out. And so I banged my the, all the kind of left side of my body, my face and everything. And I gave it a really, really good going over. But there's this small scar that comes up. You know, if you're in a, like when I used to be in a nightclub or something, yeah, you get really yeah, sweaty, this white little line yeah, yeah, happens. Yeah. But they managed to do the best possible job. Like you couldn't make it up like. It was unbelievable. But when I was recovering, I, two friends of mine from Kerry came to see me and I was in the bed and I had the the leg now at this stage I had a bar and screws and you know I had These, some, this that's the scars yeah. yeah so basically I had a bar from my knee to my my knee to my ankle wow. and screws and all of that and the the face was mangled and the two of them come in and my this part my arm they've done an amazing job because your face looks amazing yeah. now. I, well I mean like that was the least of my injuries to be right. fair my face but it was one of those ones that if you had just sewed it up it would have looked terrible yeah, yeah, you know yeah. but anyway I'm in the bed and I can't move and I've got drips and drains and everything and the two girls come in and she, they go I hear one of them say to the other looking around well she's not in here <laughs> they didn't even, even recognise me I was like it's me I'm here. you know what I mean oh gosh yeah so it was so swollen so that took a long time to recover from did you well you know it's amazing um, you heal so quickly when you're young I mean I was in hospital for 10 days or something and then I got out and yeah I was on crutches and I was in a bit of a jocker for you know all of Christmas and beyond that and then you had to kind of do rehab but realistically I got out of it pretty well like you know there's people who have actual rehab to do and yeah, I yeah. certainly wasn't one of those okay. yeah. you know I was I, I'm, I'm interested too actually it's funny now that you're talking about being in hospital again there's a scene um, with Grace yeah. uh, in hospital just your your writing is, is wonderful and really got me thinking 
I don't think this is going to spoil anything too much. No, it's and, not. And, and, but basically, she's having of necessity a double mastectomy. mastectomy. And you describe, you know, the pain, and you know, I, I could feel, I, I could feel, yeah, I, I could feel that pain. It was literally just, you know, she moved her head a tiny bit, and the drains coming out yeah. the side, etc. And it's fantastically written, and it's it's again really the style of your books. You're talking about very very serious tough stuff, but there's humor the yeah. whole way through it. There's laughing and joking, you know, even yeah. in that scene, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there is laughter and, and it's fabulous. But it really does get, you know, I mean, I really like the style of your writing because it does get you think of other things. But one thing actually that really jumped out at me on this was, you know, the description of the agony and the pain and what she's going through. And, and she had to agonise over that decision, yeah. whether to have them removed or, or whether to risk having cancer, which is what Angelina Jolie Exactly. Did. She yeah. had her double mastectomy um, for that reason. But I just kept reading it and going, and people do this for aesthetic reasons. People, you know, have their breast implants. Or, but oh. it's, it's a funny thing because, you know, like, I mean, a mastectomy is much different from breast implant. Right. For a start, it's, oh my God, it's like, it's so hardcore. And I spoke to a lot of women that had them and they were so generous with their time and they're such brave people and they're extraordinary. And they really talked me through it like right. with great detail. And then I spoke to this fantastic nurse and she told me all the medical stuff. But I mean, I can take all that pain stuff because I have endometriosis and yes. it's quite severe. So I've had many operations. I, you know, so I... I I know what that is. So I feel very comfortable talking about that. But I also know the funny things around it. Yeah. So like when Grace is coming through from anaesthetic and, you know, and then she keeps showing her boobs to everybody, yes. her new boobs, because she's her oh, nippleless yeah, boobs. She's, her nippleless <laughs> boobs. And she's trying to show her dad and he's having a heart attack. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Because she's, 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 she's on the pain. Her pain. I you loved know? that. She All keeps of pressing that. her button yeah. for the pain. And you know what I discovered? <laughs> I love the drugs. <laughs> dad, do you want to see my boobs? It's, it, it, it's, it's just horrifying. It's, it's fabulous. But it's, it's very very, very well written. It's very, you know, real in there um, on the pain. And you've brought up the endometriosis. Yeah. So you've had all your childhood, you've had your car accidents, <laughs> uh, you meet a wonderful yeah. man, yeah. your husband. Uh, you have a very high pain threshold, yeah. which was very unfortunate in this instance um, yes. because you had quite far advanced by the time I, I knew what it was, I had done the damage. So basically... Well, I had done the damage. The damage had well, been done. Well, the damage done. had been yeah. done, but yeah. So, yeah, what happened was I kept getting um, really, really severe bladder and kidney infections. Okay. And I was being treated like I... I mean, I'd be really severe and I'd be brought into hospital and okay. they'd be dealing with it in there and they kept... Severe in terms of pain uh, or... No, severe as in like I would be bleeding. Oh, gosh. Um, and um, from the bladder and from the kidney. Okay. And so they kept sending me from one kidney specialist to the next, to the next, to the next. And they couldn't work out what was wrong. And this was over a number of years. Wow. And eventually... I said something that triggered something in my aunt Mary Flood's head. And she said to me, can I ask you a question, darling? Um, do you really suffer with your period? And I said, well, you know, 
I don't know, bit like. I'm sure everybody suffers. And she went, no, but blah. And anyway, she she was working for a gynecologist at the time. Right. She was a nurse. And she went, oh, darling, you have, I think you have endometriosis. Right. So she referred me to the Mount Carmel, uh, to Valerie Donnelly. And Valerie Donnelly did the first investigation right. and then turned it into an operation. And she cleared me out. And what had happened was my bladder was kind of attached to my stomach so wall. So you had adhesions? Yes, it wasn't emptying. Yeah. And so it was going back into the kidney. But I had adhesions everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. So she... You'd obviously had scarring inside and yeah. then the adhesions, yeah, yeah, yeah so which is horrifically painful. Oh, yeah, so she cleaned me out and she sent me to the Marion Clinic, which was Hollis Street. She said, you're going to have to go there because Mary Wingfield deals with um, infertility as a result of endometriosis. So I was kind of, I think I was 30, 31 at that point. Yeah. So I went and I did one round of IVF. And after that, we gave up because we couldn't even get... um, we couldn't get eggs that were, they were just really poor. Right. And it was really funny. I was doing... Um, see, see, straight away, <laughs> this life-changing, this life-changing moment. And, and, and oh, it was, was really funny. It was really funny because I went in to do it, right? And the day they harvested my eggs, right? Yes. They put you in this twilight state, which is basically, okay. you're not awake but you're not asleep but you're kind of you're kind of stoned right yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're really stoned right? right so anyway I come out and they'd harvested the eggs and my pal Enda rang me and I answered the phone in the thing and I said to him and I still to this day don't know what I was going to say but I said to him you're never going to guess what they found and he said without missing a beat balls <laughs> Isn't that classic? Brilliant. Oh, that is yeah. absolutely brilliant. Um, but this is what is wonderful about you, and you learned it from your mom and your gran. Yeah. Is the value of laughter? Yeah. To cope with these things, and and I mean, it's funny. Over a lot of my guests have been women. You know, it, it sort of happened that way in season one. I'm just interested in interesting people. Not saying men aren't interesting. I've lots of men lined up for season two, um, but. It's funny, the whole mother thing Mm. has come up time and time again from so many different angles. So um, talking about Hillary's book that I had mentioned earlier, it's essentially a love story and going back and forth. But actually, when I closed the book, I went that's a book about mothers. And that's what she said to me in the podcast. She said, oh, very well read. She said, it was only when I finished it that I realised it was kind of a book. And her mother had died just before she started writing it. Your mother, you know, obviously is a huge force in your life, in your books that I've read, mothering, motherhood, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing is huge themes throughout your book. I've spoken to Joanne McNally, comedian. She wasn't sure. She thought there was something wrong with her. She didn't have maternal instinct. Uh, Sinead Moriarty, you know, is interested in in, infertility, you know. And and it's just this, such a, a big sort of issue and around and, 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 you know, how you have, how have you dealt with that? Because I'm, you know, you, you obviously wanted to have 
Yeah, I, I want to, first of all, what I want to say is that, you know, I feel very blessed because I feel like I've had more than one mother. I feel like I've had my mother. I've My aunt who brought me up is my mother. My aunt in Dublin is my mother. My mother-in-law, Terry McPartland, was my mother. I lost my mother at 17. Terry McPartland came into my life when I was 21. Right. OK, um, so you met you met so your husband very I young. I met him very young. We were together 20 years, you know, we, before, uh, no, 10 or 15 years before we got married. Right, okay. So, um, I... I absolutely like I have so many mothers in my life um, and because Irish people are so gorgeous and Irish mammies are so gorgeous the minute they hear my childhood they want to be my mammy yes yeah, so I'm going to yeah. tell you this story and then I'm going to answer your question because this is funny right? <laughs> so, so I have no doubt it's so, funny so, <laughs> I haven't disappointed yet there's friends of mine there's one friend of mine uh, who I worked with in Tub Insurance back in the day and whenever her mother would mention me she'd go that poor girl that yeah. just poor girl. Now, I bought you a jumper, Lucy, but I'm after buying one for Anna as well, oh. right? And she'd drive in with a jumper for me, right? And Or then, like, now I made you this, but I made one for that poor girl, right? And it was always the poor girl, right? So how did that make you feel? I just thought it was funny. You thought it was funny. it was so funny. And so endearing yeah, and yeah. so kind. Yeah, yeah. And it was really funny because, like, Lucy would be going, I'm mortified giving you this, right? I'm absolutely mortified. Yeah, yeah. She'd be red in the face and everything. Thing. But the funniest thing was when her mom found out that I got a book deal, her her response was, ah, that poor girl. <laughs> I was like, right? cracking up laughing. So anyway, uh, there's another friend of mine, right? And her mother is just salt of the earth, you know. And I was at a christening for my friend Adele's daughter, right? And the next thing is her ma was with her friends and she goes, come over here, love. And I go over and I sit down and she's saying, now, can I get this right? I want to get something sorted in my head, right? And I go, no problem, Marie, absolutely. And she goes, so your mommy and daddy split up when you were a kid and then your mommy got sick and then she died. And I said, yes. And your daddy wasn't around. And then he died. And I said, yes. And then the family that brought you up, every last bleeding one of them moved to New Zealand. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I hope you don't mind me saying, love, but you're very bleeding unfortunate. <laughs> Did they all move to New Zealand? All moved to New Zealand. Oh my I'm god! I'm the only one here. Oh my god! Yeah, oh, and uncle that. followed my foster brother slash cousin. Yes. is what we call. It's very confusing. Yeah. Uh, uh, they. It's really funny. They always say my sister Anna, and I always say foster sister because I feel like. I feel like I'm 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 not being true to mum or something that oh, I'm right, that I okay. feel like I you know if I say sister, sister. or brother yeah, yeah. it means she never existed. But isn't it lovely? It's they a call guilty you, thing. They, oh, they call, call me and yeah, but I do the whole. Which is lovely. Yeah, and they tolerate me doing yeah. the sister uh, yeah. the foster. And you have a character in one of your books, Ivan. Is it that, that there's a similar relationship? Is there in one Jesus, of the books? Jesus, I can't Ivan remember. Um, Jesus, I can't remember. I genuinely can't remember. <laughs> Anyway, we get on we but, get we get on to the career thing because you you mentioned your book deal, but before the book deal, I think before the book deal, you did stand up comedy. Yeah, There's for a, a while. surprise yeah, for a while. For a while, I was brutal. To be fair to me, uh, I was all right. I was never going to be Tommy Tiernan, right. but I was never going to be the worst act in the room either. Right. And did you act as well? I started acting initially. I I thought I wanted to be an actress, right? Because I thought that was the way to tell stories. Yes. And I suppose when you live in Kerry in the eighties, like being a normal author just seemed completely beyond me yeah, yeah. and I was always the one at the top of the class making everyone laugh and doing right. the thing so I thought oh that's how I tell my 
stories. Yeah. yeah, and everybody would refer to me as a performer. So as a result, I went, oh, that's what I'm I am. I'm a performer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it turns out I'm not a performer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually not. I don't particularly like being on the stage. I don't particularly like being centre stage. So how did you find your, your I mean, to me, you know, obviously yeah. writing is your yeah. is your thing. Yeah. That's just what you love doing and you, you do it so well and you create such real characters. And they seem to be all very much informed by your life. I mean, yeah. I want to, be, I did not have that kind of, uh, childhood that you had where you had lots of aunts and uncles and neighbours and, and they're very much the people that populate your book you know people who look out for each other and and care about each other and it's lovely and you know when I'm reading it I'm kind of going oh I'd love to be part of a community like that yeah. it's so nice you yeah. know I'm very lucky that I've lived a million different lives really mm-hmm. in a very short time I've experienced being an only child I've experienced being one of six I've, I've experienced you know having a, a, a sister that I didn't really know and that you know I've experienced loads of different things I've experienced having a mother die I, I, you know I, I've experienced so many different types of kind of family all in one lifetime yeah, it's really my themes in my book are love, loss, family, and friendship. Yeah, death, that's what I death, death, oh, death, death, is, death, death is everywhere. They're, they're, well, I mean, you know, like that's it. Like when I say to one of my pals, I say like, "Well, I'm doing a book," and he goes, "Who are you killing this time?" You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? So, like, that's that's absolutely key. How did you find your zen? How did you find that writing was your thing? I left acting because I'd made a big deal about being an actor to my aunt and my uncle and they were horrified. They were like, would you not go and get a pensionable job, right? And I was like, no, I'm an actress. You can't tell me what to do, blah, blah, blah. And made a big thing about it. And then I walked into the class and I was going, this is mortifying. I don't want to be here at all, right? So I I was like, how do I get out of this? So... Basically, I stayed in it for a while and I just knew I was never going to do well in it because I had no passion. And then I went onto the stage to do stand-up comedy. And that's when I started writing for myself. So I found then that I way preferred writing the material. And I had a partner, Ashling, and she was a definite actress and she loved performing. So she got off on the performance and I got off on the writing. writing. And then what happened was uh, I get hit by a car and I'm in the hospital and uh, a friend of mine brings me the the Roddy Doyle trilogy right uh, the snapper the commitments in the van and I read them and the nurse used to come in to see if I was having you know a meltdown or something because I'd be laughing. laughing so much and basically I went oh I can do that right I can do that right so I tried and I, little did I know that it would take me 10 years to be able to do it because I, I was writing and working for 10 years before I got a deal right. but I kept doing it. And So did you just keep writing books? Had you got a pile of books ready to go nearly? No, or, or I kept writing the same book. I, I, yeah and also I was writing scripts. I was doing a lot of television scripts. Okay. Um, so I did a load of them. Oh, oh so these were just scripts that you were scripts, pitching? Pitching. Pitching. See, so I, terrible. Do you know what I think is really interesting is so I used to be an actor mm. so when I read your book yeah, I read they, they read to me like a, a television script now I have I have a yen to write a fiction book I yeah. would like to do that I mean I write non-fiction um, and I really enjoy that process and I know that I'm good at it I have absolutely no idea whether I could write a uh, Fiction, but I know in the book that I have just finished, I write a lot of anecdotes. It's just it's talking about brain fog, and I know I really enjoyed writing those pieces. But anyway, I'm sort of digressing in in the sense that 
I do have some ideas. They're mulling around. That what we were talking about. We were talking about earlier that how forgetful we both, yeah, <laughs> we both yeah, are. Yeah. And we were saying it's because we're always doing something in our head. We're not being present in the moment. So I've been mulling sort of ideas for for a fiction book around my head for a while. But the funny thing is for me, and I don't know whether it's my acting background and I worked in television and in film, is. I really see the books as a TV mm. series. Mm. I, I want to write a book, but that's how they appear to me. Yeah. But that's how I read your books to me, read more like a TV drama. And you you do, you write for Casualty, you write for television. Uh, I write for, for television. Hobby City and Striking Out and, and I have loads in development of my own stuff at the moment. So I'm... I, the, like, the last days of, of, of Rabbit, Rabbit Haze is in development. For now, a feature film. Which is great, but like development is brilliant place to be yes, I, but it also means that it might never get made no, I, know, I mean I that understand. there's no I, guarantees I worked in the film yeah. industry so yeah. in development you know and some even when there you have a major producer behind yeah. it or whatever in development can take 10, 15, oh, 20 years but it's still fab that it's, it's yes, you know absolutely. it's possible and will you write the script or I've done the script oh you've done the script yeah I've done the script yeah wow so, so that's um, really cool yeah no and we've got a good director that we're really happy with attached and so we're looking for a production company a bigger one in the UK but we'll see we'll see I mean you as you know it's a it's a long process but yeah I mean I have a certain very kind of visual and, and I'm very dialogue driven mm. in my books uh, a lot more so than many do you know yeah. what I mean yeah um, but definitely when you are writing television it's a completely different skill yeah. set I mean it's it's show don't tell yes. you know um, and I love both I mean I love writing television television as well and I love the I love the village feel of writing for television because you know you're never on your own you always have your producer your script editor everybody's there all the time do you know what I mean all the time yeah but I mean I learned that from my first book the writing book actually is a collaboration yes you might sit at home and write the first draft you know but but your editor you know feeds in and people have ideas well certainly for non-fiction I don't know how it works so much for for fiction but you tell the story and then they come in whereas from the get-go in television yeah they're there from the beat sheet onwards they're there did I read somewhere because I had it in my notes (laughs) and I don't know whether I actually read it but that you had three months to write a script for something oh three months is is normal for a Holby Uh, if you're writing a Holby uh, episode it's over three three months months. so I had to write my book during lockdown I had fucking three months to write my whole book yeah well (laughs) you had three months to write an episode no but you see what happens is that's because you're in a machine so I would write a book with three to four months no problem because I'm not waiting on anyone so because you're in part of the machine right. they have five writers For and every five episodes episode, no, no no five episodes being written every single month right. because they have to keep the machine going yeah, yeah. so what happens is I get into my slot and I go and do so I start writing on say the 1st of March right and then I have to deliver the beat sheet uh, within seven days so what's the beat sheet the beat sheet is what is a breakdown of the episode a scene by scene breakdown okay. of what you want to do in the episode so it's like an overview an of overview it, like saying these are the chapters of the book exactly Yeah. so giving a little paragraph on what you yeah. want to do in each scene so you hand that in and then you wait a couple couple of days right. for them to come back and agree it and then you do go you go kick off to your first draft and then you wait for them to come back with their notes and then you kick off to your second right, draft okay. and so on until you get to the director's draft which is 
draft five. Right. So it's not like you're working every single right, day yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you're but in I the machine. But I think you need for, bre- for, for, for writing, for me, anyway, I, I don't know if it applies to you, but I just need so much breathing space. I mean, mm. I like to write something, you know, get to a point, you know, there's that horrible where it's all in your head and you're yeah. trying to get stuff down. But then you have to walk away from it for a month, you know, at least a couple of weeks because it's only then you can come back and look and go, oh, what was I thinking? That's yeah. a pile of rubbish. Or, oh, well, OK, that's not too bad. Or I need to see. But you can't, you can't be self-editing in a way too close to it. You have to. And, have and also it's, 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 it's too hard because you're too close to the effort you put into it, which is, you know, you kind of go, God, no, I just spent four days writing that. I'm not going to dump it. Whereas a month later, you've forgotten how long you spent and you kind of got that needs to be binned. 100%. And, and that's definitely true of books. The brilliant thing about being in a team for television is that you've got other people to tell you in real time how shit you are. So, no, but that's good. It's brilliant because they go, that's awful, but that's good and I want that and how about we change this, which is amazing. I love notes. A lot of writers don't like notes. I love them. I love my editor. I have a new editor this time and I was, it was very funny actually (laughs) talking about you and I'm much more serious than you, but I was absolutely ecstatic over the moon to get a, to get a a literary agent, you know, um, and it, it, it happened in a, in, in a lovely way and I think I've said that already in, in an episode but basically my book came out on the 7th of March 2019 and my agent pretty much called me to say she was leaving the agency Oh brilliant Right Brilliant <laughs> Right and I'm going ah. and you know we were already thinking of pitching another book and all the rest then a few weeks after that uh, my editor at the publishing house she left. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and she left not to go to another publishing house, to oh. go to something else completely, uh, completely different. Um, I got a book deal in the US. <laughs> <laughs> the editor with my book deal left. No. Yes. This was all in the period of few oh, months. And you're no. kind of thinking, oh my God, all this stuff is going to fall apart. Do you know? Yeah. Like I've, I've got here and I've built up these relationships and I have another book I want to write. And, and you know, other people, new people aren't going to care. Now, as it happens, the new editor that came in, Pippa, we just get on like a house on fire and I love her notes. Like she just came me back. It, it was just, just perfect. I sent off my first draft. She came back with my notes and I went, brilliant, brilliant. That's what I want to do. That's what yeah. I want to do. I did them, sent them back to her and she said, brilliant. We're straight to copy editing. It's brilliant. But, but that's wonderful. And But I mean, I do and I did and I always say that. Here's whatever. I'm not precious about this. Tell me what's crap. Tell me what works because if I know what you say this works, oh, okay. I'll just write more of that because if I've written that I know then how to do that I it's wonderful that's the difference between being successful and not being successful because you can't be precious in no. this industry and what everybody wants to achieve is the best possible story the best possible book the, the publisher be- has your best interests at heart because they're, your interests are aligned yes absolutely so everybody's working to everybody's the same everybody's on goal. your side so everybody. it's not criticism no. it is trying to elevate your work yeah. so and I get excited by notes I do too I can't yeah. wait for them. Yeah, me too. Can't wait for them. We're such just, nerds. Oh, I just can't wait for them. It's it's like, I'm, yeah. I'm hungry. Give yeah. them to me, you know. Like, and actually yeah. now, you know, I'm really hungry to start writing again because I kind of want that, yeah. that process again. And I mean, I'm only at copy editing stage, but but I'm just hungry and, and, and you know, the, the, the brain is going. And I do. I love that collaboration because it is lovely to have. I think it's a privilege.
privilege to have another human being sit and pour over your work yeah. and decide what works, how could it be tweaked, how could you make it better. I think that's a real privilege. Oh, and if amazing. there's any sort of aspiring writers out there, if anyone even, you know, even if you send something to a literary agent and they don't like what you've done and they give you reasons look at those reasons Absolutely. after the sting is gone you know yeah. like the first sting can be awful you know and you kind of go blah, blah. but go away and then come back and go what are they actually saying oh actually that's really invaluable advice if, yes. it, if a literary agent takes the time to give you that advice it's 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 what they all know they know what they know what sells and at the end of the day you want people to read your books and i will on that note, say you have to go out and, and buy Below the Big Blue Sky. Below the Big Blue Sky, which is a just fantastic read. Fabulous people. You'll enjoy every minute of it. Thank you so much for sharing your life and journey. And it's been amazing. Your books are an absolute joy. The thing I want to ask you to end with is you have really survived a lot and you've come out and you really are thriving in life. I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. I think I might know the answer to this. But <laughs> what would you say, you know, when you're in the midst of something terrible, what would be key around surviving? And then if there's something different around how you then thrive? My key tip is to surround yourself by kind people and laugh as long and as often as possible. And there is a way of seeing the funny side. A friend of mine accused me once of living for the joke. And basically, that's what I'm doing. I'm living to find where the joke is every time. So any situation that happens, I'll find the joke in it. And that's maybe something that just is who I am. And it's no, the people aren't capable of it. Like, but kindness and laughter and trying to just see this funny side, if at all possible, is the best way to survive yeah. and thrive. You, 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 you just reminded me actually and it's, it's around this positivity. You did one of these interviews where it was, you know, these quick fire questions. Yeah. And I remember reading it and going, oh my God, um, you know, what are your regrets? And you kind of went, I've never harmed anybody. I have no regrets. Yeah. You know, just going through all of the questions was just positivity and you did yeah. talk about kindness. And then I think the last thing on it was that you had said, yes, yes, I actually have it here. <laughs> what is your greatest regret? I haven't deliberately hurt anyone, so I have no regrets. What is your ultimate guilty pleasure? I feel guilty about nothing. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> For an Irish person to be able to say, I feel guilty about nothing when we were made feel guilty about everything. And then you, you add the piece of humour in it. I could say chocolate, but no, I'm not feeling the guilt. <laughs> love that. And on that note, thank you so much, Anna. It's been an absolute pleasure. And a pleasure for me too. Thanks yes, for having enjoy me. Enjoy it. Oh, oh, it's brilliant. Gosh, what a life. <laughs> Anna's mum was diagnosed with MS when Anna was a child. Thankfully, treatments have improved immensely since then. We also know that looking after brain health is particularly important for people living with MS. 
Check out my website, superbrain.ie, for free brain health resources for people living with MS. I'll also share some links to my animations on brain health for MS on my social media. Tune in on Thursday when I'll explore the relationship between laughter and resilience in this week's Booster Shot. My name is Sabina Brennan. Thank you for listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 